what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Tech episodes of this podcast are now supported by Furos.io. That is F-U-R-O-S.io. Furos is a Denver cloud consulting firm. And chances are, if there's a big building in downtown Denver with their logo on the outside of it, Furos has got people in there doing some very interesting work that has an impact on those businesses. They focus on AWS, cloud consulting, and Their mantra is simple, hire the best people they can, pay them really well, and let them work on challenging, interesting projects that have impacts on the business. So if you are struggling with the cloud, and I know that's a really overused word in the tech space, and projects aren't getting done, and you need some help, look them up, furos.io, that is F-U-R-O-S dot I-O. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you again for listening. I'm sitting here with Dr. Phil Beaver. He is the professor of analytics at the Daniels College of Business at the local University of Denver and also a retired army colonel. And Phil, thanks for making the time. It's good having you here. Matt, thanks for inviting me. This is wonderful. Good. Uh, So first thing, analytics. I know that it's on the cover of two of the magazines I subscribe to, but uh, again, whenever I see buzzwords in the tech industry, what exactly, I guess in your world, is analytics? That's a, a wonderful question because there's more than one buzzword going around right now. So we can talk data and big data and analytics and we can talk machine learning and AI and all the other cool buzzwords that everybody's yes, please. talking about <laughs> and, and that uh, surprisingly very few people uh, really have a good handle on, although more and more people are at least starting to understand data and analytics. And, and it's all very simple. It's the, the um, objective of making better decisions. And since I teach at a business college, I'm going to use business um, scenarios here. But it, of the objective of making better business decisions based on the data that you've got. And if you've got a, a very robust data set on your customers or on your products or on your uh, market or whatever it might whatever it might be, uh, you can leverage that data to make better decisions, and that's what being a good business person is all about. Uh, we certainly recognize that it's not the only element in decision making, but it's becoming a more and more popular one. Um, while I was in the military, I was an operations research analyst. That was my uh, last. I spent 25 years of, of commission service, and my last 15 years were as an OR analyst. And the military was really one of the first organizations, as well as the British military, British Army, and the Russian Army around the time of World War II to start leveraging um, operations research. Uh, the, coin, the term was coined by the Brits in uh, 1938, I believe. And what, uh, what it means was taking the data that you had about something you had to do, and most of it was supporting logistics of World War II, and doing it more efficiently, doing it better. How do we get all this equipment over to England? How do we get all this equipment over to France? Um, and, of course, the Russians were, Russians were solving the same problems on, uh, on their front. And so 
for since then, you know, the military has worked very hard in terms of leveraging the data that we had to make better decisions. And when I became an operations research analyst uh, for the military, it, you know, it occurred to me, wow, we can do this because we've got the budget that lets us do this. We've got the, all the data we've ever needed. When I was in the Army personnel staff as a, uh, um, as a HR analyst, I had all the personnel files for everybody in the Army back to World War II. Uh, who else has that? You know, who else has and who else has a you know, you know forty-five billion dollar annual HR budget? <laughs> you know? And and so so we were able to do that. And uh, when I retired, um, I wasn't expecting to do much more with it because I had kind of missed the fact that industry was not only catching up but leapfrogging past government in this because. The, the collection and maintenance and storage and manipulation of data had gotten so cheap and the software programs that we have available to us to, to make sense out of the data have not only gotten so cheap, but many of them are free. R and Python are free products out there that you could just download and start using. Um, and so now it's, it's, you know, everybody's jumping on this bandwagon, um, and yes, big data is a part of it. I still don't know what big data is, but I, <laughs> I assume it's more data that's, than it's going to fit on my laptop. You know, in the early 2000s, I was running around the Pentagon with stacks of CDs in these leather Ziploc cases with, you know, um, with uh, locks on them and, and uh, um, handcuffed to your wrist as you took them from one office to the next. And we had, you know... A hundred gigabytes of data, <laughs> and in two thousand and one, that was a lot of data, you know. And yeah. and now, you know, I've got ten terabytes on my laptop, and so you know, we've we've obviously gotten a whole lot better at at doing this. And so, what big data is is um, is you know, the definition of that keeps I think uh, creeping away from us. Uh, you know, certainly I consider you know uh, petabytes to be a lot of data. And uh, the organizations that I work with that have the opportunity to use data sets that size, or I think they all call, consider it big data. But the, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter how much data you have or what it is. It's what you do with it. Um, you know, so many organizations now are, are so excited about, okay, we now have our data organized. We now have our data in one place. We now have this data lake that everyone can access. We now have a distributed file system that can do anything we want to with. We can connect it in any way we want to and connect it to outside sources. And, and you know, boy, we've got all the data we need. And my question is always, okay, so what are we doing with it? You know, <laughs> what does that, you know, what does that do for your decision-making process? You know, and uh, a lot of my graduates from my program, unfortunately, have found themselves as simply dashboard monkeys. You know, take the data that we've got, um, draw some nice charts with it, have them, you know, update every morning and have those feed the C-suite where they can push a button and and get their finger on the pulse of the organization. And it's a great first start. It's a great, you know, uh, uh, initial step towards doing analytics. But you know, they come to me and they complain. They say, well, you know, we're, we're not really using analytics. I mean, no, you're not. So automate your dashboards and start digging into the data that you now know so well and look for insights that you know, maybe the older generation of um, executives aren't going to even know to look for. 
you know, there's we do have still a generation of executives right now who I talk to all the time who just, you know, they, they know about data, they know about analytics, they really don't know what it is. And they need they need people who are skilled in that to help them with their decision making process. And so that's that's all it is, taking your data. And it could be just through a dashboard or it could be just through a couple of statistical tests, but it could also be through some very, very sophisticated models. And um, the whole goal of that is for the organizations to leverage the data they're sitting on, that they've been sitting on for decades, and see how they can use it to make better decisions. So in a nutshell, that's my view of the, the data and analytics landscape, and that's what analytics is all about to me. How granular was the data on the soldiers in the army? Was there anything that was such a low level piece of information about a particular soldier that just you were stunned that it was collected? So uh, we we um, moved over to a commercial piece of, of software while I was on the army staff. Um, and we essentially had roughly... 2,000 fields for every soldier for uh, for so for every one of our um, every one of our records had up to 2,000 fields that was obviously more than enough for any HR system um, <clears throat> but that included every medal the soldier ever had um, it did include some personal dev- demographics the obviously the age the gender, the uh, race, the uh, marital status, the health status. There were there were some summaries there from the um, from the, the soldier health records that got fed into their personnel records, and then of course you know every medal they've won, um, all the training they've had, all the schools they've been to, all of the um, uh, um, units that they've been assigned to, all the duty positions that they've uh, they've been assigned. I um, so really honestly no surprises, but I'm going to have to because you mentioned that specifically. I'm going to have to give a shout out to somebody. Um, my my boss's boss was a wonderful uh, wonderful man named uh, General Maud, who uh, was the three star in charge of the Army personnel system. He was what we would the civilian equivalent of the Army's HR director, um, a tremendous tremendous individual and. Um, on 9-11, a plane threw, flew into his window, and uh, he was one of the first, must have been one of the first five people to perish in the Pentagon on 9-11. Um, he was in the direct path of the plane that came in. But about two weeks before 9-11, General Maud had spoken with a number of us on the Army staff, um, on the personnel staff, and one of the things he said was, you know, right now we have soldiers getting assigned to units and the first sergeant puts their name up on a board against some position in that organization in that company and uh that gets sent in a report up to battalion headquarters it gets consolidated on floppy disks those get driven to brigade headquarters and and you know they get they get put together and every day the status of the army gets sent to the army personnel center in alexandria and he said, you know, we can do so much better than that. The first sergeant should just have a card reader in his office. And the soldier can come in, and when the soldier gets assigned there, they swipe their card. The first sergeant punches in a code in the card reader, 
and the soldier's new assignment and position is now automatically sent all the way up the chain to the uh, to the Department of the Army, and we know exactly where every soldier is at all times. And to me, it was such a wonderful vision. That conversation happened in the summer of 2001. And, and I just remember thinking, well, gosh, what an obvious solution, but why aren't we doing it? (laughs) And of course, uh, that, that was put on hold. Um, since I retired from the army in 2008, I have no idea how we're reporting personnel uh, status anymore, but the, uh, um, the way we're doing it, I'm sure, is very close to what was General Maud's original vision for that. He was a, a real visionary, and uh, we lost a, a great leader and a great American on 9-11 when, uh, when that plane hit him. But uh, you know, to be honest, in terms of the personnel files for the soldiers, there's not much exciting in there. One thing that we did, though, is those reside in the – all the reports come in, and they get fed into a uh, system that sits in the basement of the uh, – um, used to be called PERSCOM, Personnel Support Command. I'm not sure what it's called now. It was Total Army Personnel Agency for a while. But the same, the building's been there since forever. And uh, in the basement of that building, they have all the files. And when I needed to get a download of all of the um, files with all the Army personnel information on it for every soldier in the Army, that we would sneak in at that. That was... That was Saved to a disk to at that back in those days it was a floppy and I would take that floppy and I would go load it on the systems that we had that were standalone that we would not you know we we were not sending those files around because even back then we understood the threat to the uh, to the individuals for, you know in terms of their privacy and mm-hmm. and we, I mean because we yes we had all the social security numbers of everybody in the army and uh, we did not we did not want that to get out to the point where where everything we did was on the sneaker net. And even though we had classified networks in the Pentagon, uh, that that was a set of files that we delivered by hand. <clears throat> well, and thanks for the, the story about General Maude. Um, I appreciate that. And were you in the Pentagon on 9-11? I was. I, uh, we, um, I was in the, the plane came diagonally through our offices. When I say offices, I was in there with about 200 of my closest friends in a giant cubicle farm. But the plane came through diagonally, and uh, I was in the corner that it did not hit, and I didn't get a scratch. So it was a uh, um, we lost twenty eight people out of our office that morning. But it was and and everybody below us on the on the floor below us um, who was in their office perished. They got the worst of it because the fuel in the wings um, blew up on the first floor. We were up on the second floor, but we lost uh, we lost twenty twenty eight of our coworkers that morning. Wow. Um. Yeah, awkward transition to oh, no. <laughs> to uh, General Maud, but I love those innovations where it's the sort of slap the forehead moment where it's just such a simple distillation of a problem that has been just apparent there all the time. But <laughs> absolutely, we and and it's just part of the amount of data that we're moving today. I have a, I, I give a number of talks around town, and when I do, I have a slide that says we collect more data every day than we did as a species through two thousand and eight. <laughs> 
And that slide was true when I wrote it in 2011. Now we collect more data at every hour than we did as a species through 2008. Uh, the, the, every hour? Every hour. <laughs> the amount of data that we collect on this planet. Now, a lot of those, I mean, a lot of the data we're collecting are pictures of middle school girls' breakfasts that, you know, <laughs> that, get, that get taken and sent around the internet because you can't eat breakfast until you've sent your friends a picture of the, 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 the apparently the sacrifice you're going to make to the food god that morning. But, uh, I mean, there's a lot of ridiculous data out there. But there's also a lot of really good data. And, and you know, of course, the, 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 the vast volume of data that we, uh, that we have um, streaming in comes from sensor systems. You know, every aircraft... Uh, you know, flying it every time, you know, has c constant streams of data flowing back to the ground so they can be monitored and they're recording all of the systems as they're, as they're moving. And, and our um, you know, oil wells have, you know, anywhere from several hundred to several thousand sensors on every one um, recording what's happening. And, you know, it's a lot of data to maintain, but we've got to hang on to it because if something happens with that wellhead, we need to know what led up to it. We don't know how far back we need to go to figure out what, when we might have had something that indicated that something was going to go wrong with that wellhead. And so right now we're keeping all the data. Um, the uh, the NOAA, uh, as you know, as part of the, the Department of Commerce, um, the uh, CIO for the Department of Commerce, uh, in, in a talk that I attended a few years ago, was explaining how uh, the National Weather Service and NOAA collect all the data, all the weather data from um, from uh, you know every weather station on the planet, streaming in, and uh, they um, they couldn't maintain it. I, I can't remember what institution they partnered with. I believe it was Chicago, maybe University of Chicago, uh, but it's somebody who maintains that data set for them, and uh, that's sixty terabytes a day of just the Earth's weather data. And of course, you know, with all with all the attention that our weather and our climate's getting in the news right now, we better have as much information as we possibly can on what the weather and the climate is, because you know this is something that that we're we're making important decisions on right now, and and uh, we need to make make sure that those decisions are informed. So, with data, if I was to really really simplify, is data the past and analytics is trying to predict the future with the past would that be somewhat accurate so the 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 absolutely accurate part about that is data is absolutely the past okay, okay. we're not we can't collect anything on the future yet i can't wait till we can but um right a data the data we have is a record of here has what here is what's happened um and it could be it could be on anything it could be you know uh data being fed in from our transaction processing systems at a retail outlet where everything that was bought gets recorded by item and the sales taxes and the way that that was paid is all recorded there and that goes into our accounting systems but it also goes into our operation systems and our marketing systems and so data is um, you know a record of everything that has happened or everything that has happened that we're able to record and this is every satellite flying over the earth taking pictures and it's every um you know uh um youtube video that's shot and uploaded and it's uh every picture someone takes on their phone um it's uh every sensor that's feeding some system where it's being not just not just noted but maintained 
And so that's the that's the difference. You you do have you do have some systems where the data is being generated and it's sending out alerts, but as soon as the data is passed through the alert system, the alert's been made, the data disappears. You don't you don't care about it anymore. Um, whereas in other cases, when you know what we really talk about with data is we're we're maintaining all the data that's come through our system. You know, if it's our smart home, um, we you know. We can have an alert system tell us when the refrigerator has been left open for more than five minutes. Okay, it's been open for five minutes. It, the alert sounds and we're done. We never again know that that alert sounded and we never again know that the refrigerator was open for five minutes. If we maintain all of that though, and we have a record of what time of day the refrigerator has been open and what time of day the TV's been on and the heater and air conditioning have come on and the dog door has been activated and whatever it is, then if we keep all of that, we get a really good picture of, okay, what's happening in that house, in that home. So that's the data. That's the data. The data is a record of what's happened in the past. Uh, what do we do with it? What's analytics all about? Okay, analytics, uh, like I said, it's there to support decision-making. And that's a great question. How do we do it? How does it do it? And the analytics can be used in a number of ways. The, the most simple is to simply describe. So there's your dashboard. Let's describe what happened. Let's describe, okay, here's how many times during the day the refrigerator was open. Let's look at how many of these items we sold in this store on this day. Let's look at what the weather was at this station at this time. Okay, and we can get a pretty nice picture of the past. And in, in a lot of cases, those conditions that we can now observe from the past can give us some insights as terms of, okay, what was happening then? And does, did it matter to us? You know, were, were we having customer surges where we might have done better if we had opened up another cash register or something? So that just describes what went on. The, uh, the other, um, the next use of data, the next level up, if you will, is to explain. And so, okay, here's what happened, but here's why it happened. Geez, you know, we sold all of these items and then we stopped selling them. Okay, well, why did that happen? Well, maybe we ran out of inventory. Uh, maybe um, somebody knocked over the store display and for a while until we can get it picked up, no one was picking stuff up, up off the ground to take to the cash register. Uh, you know, this we, we see something in the data that happened and we want to know why. And, and of course, we have the, the, the great danger of correlation versus causality. Okay, you know, this, boy, this, this happened at the same time as this. That must be the reason it happened. Well, no, that may not be the reason it happened. That may be a coincidence or a spurious relationship, or that may very well be the exact reason that that, that, that happened. And, um, you know, there's, uh, so that's the next step that we want to do with with data and data models is to explain what happened now let's take that a step further um and this is about your question about the future which is a good one okay um what's going to happen next let's use our data to forecast let's use our data to predict and uh that can be something as simple as looking at the trend looking at the the number of this item sold by day at these various outlets and looking at, oh, we're selling more and more each day. Okay, we better start stocking a little bit more. We better turn up the heat a little bit on our supply chain to get a little bit more um, 
that item on the shelves because it looks like it's becoming more popular. Or, okay, now our sales are starting to lag there. Okay, let's turn down the dial a little bit on our supply chain and try to get rid of the uh, inventory that's taking up shelf space now. So, again, to predict, we want to know what's going to happen next. And, of course, you know, that's exactly, you know, the, I mean, the, if you want the, the classic example of that, think about a weather forecaster. You know, a weather <laughs> forecaster has all the data. They've got 60 terabytes every day of data on the world's weather conditions. Okay, what's it going to be tomorrow? They've gotten pretty good at that because they've got models that can take today's conditions and move them forward into the future and forecast tomorrow's and the next days and the next days. But when you get too many next days in there, they don't do so hot anymore. Um, that's a, a, a very unstable, uh, literally a chaotic system. It becomes very hard to predict uh, uh, any any amount of time out into, into the uh, past, you know, about seven days right now. So I think it's how how well they're doing with with, with their current suite of models. But uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do in business. You know, who's going to win? Uh, you know, uh, who, who's going to sell what? Who's going to buy what? Um, who's going to need what? Who's going to want what? Um, how many customers are we getting? How many customers are we losing? Any any of these? Um, you know, what, what, how are the demographics of our customers changing? Uh, you know, we use these, uh, we all have these these great little uh, discount cards that, you know, and, uh, that we think that, okay, oh, we're going to save a couple of bucks at, at a King Super gas station or whatever it is. No, what we're really doing is we're, we're sharing our data with King Super. And by golly, they're telling, you know, they're figuring out exactly who we are. But uh, what are they doing with that? They're making sure that they have on hand the products that we're going to need and we win. You know, so we share a little <laughs> data with them and, and we... We do much better. Um, and then uh, we can even take it a step further. We can prescribe. Uh, so we can we can run models on data that are not just predictive, but prescriptive. So, um, you know, here's a bunch of data that we've got. And we're, let's say it's, um, let's say it's all of the appointments that a medical facility is going to need to schedule over the coming month. Okay. And... What we want to do is we want to make maximum use of our um, of our exam rooms and, and of our our, our uh, patient waiting areas and our, our triage uh, uh, capability or whatever else it is in our in our uh, in our medical operation. And if if we know what those appointments are going to be and approximately how long they're going to take, and we could even use analytics to determine that, then. We can schedule optimally so that we can get as many appointments in in the next month as our exam rooms can handle. Uh, what we're trying to do is uh, reduce wasted time. And I, I give that as an example because I've seen a, a healthcare organization here in Denver do precisely that, where they were letting the doctors schedule the exam rooms at their convenience. And the doctor would say, I need that exam room from 10 to 10.45. And some of the other doctors would say, well, I need it from... 11.05 to 11.30, and now all of a sudden from 10.45 to 11.05, we can't squeeze in another appointment. We have a lot of dead space. But if you use um, use analytics to, you know, and then that would be just a very simple optimization model to schedule those appointments for the system and tell the doctors that they're going to, okay, here's a window where you can ask for an appointment, but you can't ask for this room at that time because it might bump up against somebody else. Then you can, you know, go and I, you, I've watched a system here go from 45% to 90% occupancy hmm. in their exam rooms just using a prescriptive model. 
using a model that says, okay, here is here are your constraints. Here are the appointments that you want to have during this month. And here's the time to schedule those precisely so that we don't waste exam room time. And it's a, believe it or not, that's kind of a hard problem. Um, the, uh, um, uh, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, uh, Standard Oil of Northern California back in the 70s when the gas stations would call in their needs every day. And they had a dispatcher who would just tell the trucks, okay, here's this, you need this much here and this much here and this much here, so go on out. And a friend of mine built a, uh, an optimization model to prescribe the, um, the, trucks that, the, the trucks that should service which stations, which routes they should take. And the thing that he was minimizing every day for, for um, Standard Oil was the, um, was he miles driven. By those trucks save them millions uh, and his model his model pr produced the solution that they executed every day instead of the dispatcher just checking off uh things on a on a uh with you know on, on a board with a grease pencil they would you know they, they would feed the dispatcher this truck will go th this route hit these three stations with this much fuel and there was your your optimal solution no human could ever come close to that to that optimal solution, uh, and and we did a um, you know my a friend of mine who who wrote that model, uh, I believe still gets residuals uh, <laughs> from from standard, and that was written in the early seventies. I will say I got to give it. What tools did he use in the seventies? Back then he was he was he was writing in, um, it, I want to say Fortran, but it might have been oh. COBOL, and the program was written on punch cards. So that was a lot of programming. It was a very sophisticated model. Now, in terms of scheduling, I do have to give a shout out to um, to the Denver Police Department because they came to us with a very similar problem, and they said, "Okay, how can we opt optimally schedule so we have we have the best coverage against the peak hours, against the peak nine one one surge times, and and we can, and, but we still can can meet all of our patrol goals." And so we took all of their data and and their all their parameters and how they how they run their shifts, and we had a student build them an, a prescriptive model, an optimization model. And I can't tell you how close that system that that solution was to what their scheduler was doing by hand. She was just absolutely nailing it. So that was uh, <laughs> that was that was very fun to watch because um, the the model that the student uh, produced for that was was a very sophisticated model. Uh, it's a very hard problem, a very complex problem, and she was doing it with her best gut instinct, and she was actually getting it right. It was that was that was one where where the the analytics simply confirmed that yes, we're making the right decisions already. So that was that was a lot of fun. That's cool. <clears throat> you know, as you're talking about the the different um, results of the data, the one thing that popped into my head was you know you talk about the weatherman or people trying to predict the future like if i hung up a shingle and said i can predict the future right <laughs> people <laughs> would laugh at me or lock me up or something like that but you know it's still uncertain to some degree right because you're dealing with nature or dealing with people and how how rare is it that or let me let me back this question up a little bit what degree of certainty are 
you trying to get with business? I know 100% is obviously the goal, but it's probably impossible. Does it vary case to case for an acceptable level of certainty from a predictive, um, a predictive model? Absolutely, and and you know the, the 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 dream goal is to predict, you know, with absolute certainty, which you can never do, but to predict with absolute accuracy, which you can sometimes do, but that's uh, more often blind luck than than actually hitting the. Uh, <clears throat> but but. Uh, <clears throat> as you uh, as you get more and more data and you get more and more sophisticated models, you can do better. We have what we call in regression modeling, and it's 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 a measure that's very common in terms of how accurate a model is. What we call an R squared. An R squared is a number between zero and one that tells what percent of the variability in the thing that we're trying to predict is explained by the factors in the model, and so. If you're uh, in a physics lab, your R squared better be 0.9999. If you have a mechanical system that's following the laws of physics, that's pretty good. If you're trying to predict market trends, you know, uh, R squared of 0.8 would be really, really good. If you're doing, you know, uh, sociological studies or, or psychological studies on human behavior, if you're hitting 0.5, that's that's pretty strong. As a matter of fact, if you're doing studies on human behavior, and you're getting an R squared of 0.9. I'm going to question your your data. I'm going to question <laughs> question whether or not you're faking something. Um, if you're trying to predict, you know, next year's fuel prices, next year's oil prices, or you know where the economy is going to go, or some other things, you know, if if you if you hit 0.2, you're doing pretty well. And, you know, does that mean that your model is completely useless? Well, no, there's 80% of the variability that you haven't explained, but at least you have some insight into, you know, 20% of the variability in the market. Here's, here's something that seems to be driving it in that direction. And so that's the, uh, you know, um, you know, and your, your question is right on the money. Uh, how, you know, how good is good enough and does it vary by, by application? Absolutely. And, you know, if, if I'm a decision maker and I'm, I'm seeing an R squared of 0.8 or 0.9, I'm pretty confident that I'm about to make the right decision. And if I'm seeing an R squared of 0.5, I'm maybe not so confident. And if I'm seeing an R squared of 0.2, I might have to see if we can get some more data, build a better model, or, you know, just do what decision makers have always done in that case, and which is go with your gut. So there's a, um, you know, and, and uh, we, you know, we, 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 we see this all the time with forecasting models or even explanatory models. Okay, what are the factors that are driving this? And, um, you know, one of the, you know, if you, if you can find that a certain set of factors seem to be driving even 60% of something, okay, well, now you've got at least some insight into what's happening with that system. And if you can manipulate those factors, if you can control those factors, then you you can at least hopefully move the needle in the direction that you'd like it to go. <laughs> I love that petabytes of data can still come down to your gut. <laughs> right. Absol- oh, absolutely. I mean, and and this this is something that that's important. Um, with, with particularly with our students, I I give them, you know, we, we're giving them the tools to do the analytics, and we're giving them 
the, the, the tools to manage the data and to, to, to bring the data into their models. And we're giving the tools to interpret their models. But one of the most important tools that we're giving them is, okay, now that you've built a model from your data that, ex that tells you something, it explains or describes or predicts or prescribes, how are you going to convince the decision maker in your organization that that's now the decision they need to make? And so, um, you know, uh, communicating is a huge part of the, um, the analytic process, but analytics is not the full decision-making process. And we make it very clear that there's, you know, that there are, there are still some, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's experts there who have been making good decisions for centuries, you know, at the top of their, at the top of their industries. And, um, you know, we're just suggesting that analytics is a way for them to hone their decision-making skills, to improve their decision-making process. It's another dimension um, in their, you know, their, uh, their, their gut feel sometimes you know, goes goes right and there's a lot of great cases out there where people's guts have been have been right on the money but then you know, there's a whole lot of ones where companies have gone south and and you know because of bad decision making and so if this is a dimension that we can bring into this process then why wouldn't we agreed well and you were talking about the airplane example and this question is about <clears throat> what's collected versus what's analyzed and and i'm guessing you can talk about the process too so if you're a data scientist is that the proper or so let's make that our next question in terms of what the okay. term is called because that's Sweet. one i'll be happy to address but let's let's cool. keep talking about the plane yeah so um i'm guessing that somebody would okay here's here's an airplane for example of you want to collect data for this and is there such a thing as good data, bad data, you know, irrelevant data? Because I'm guessing, like, to get very, very simplistic, probably the color of the seat cushions is a piece <laughs> of data you could collect, but it's not very relevant. But and I would say that airspeed, weight, fuel capacity, you know, certain things have more value to be collected and analyzed. Absolutely. So, so the airplane example is a great one. And um, off the top of my head, I have no clue how many sensors may be on an airplane. I'm, I'm assuming it's someplace in the thousands because you've got, we've got that meaning on our, our freaking cars now. So mm -hmm. airplanes are going to have, you know, they're going to have the fuel sensors and the temperature gauges and the pressure sensors and, and whether this, you know, the sensor to tell you whether the sensor light is, is on or not. Um, it's, uh, you know, and a lot of duplication in those systems because obviously people's lives are at stake. We need High to plane to fly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, um, so there's, there's, there's a couple, there's a couple of ways to treat that data. And we'll also get back to the question of, you know, qual data quality and cleanliness in, in a minute as well. But let's, let's, let's stay on this, on this thread for a second, because it's a very interesting one. What, you would see on a system like that, whether it's an airplane, an oil well, or a, a, a freight liner, or a, a train, or whatever it is, is you're measuring things that you know should be within a certain range. And what you're looking for is you're looking for the system to alert you when things go out of range. So your oil light comes on in your car, your check engine light comes on in your car. 
because something's not working. And in a lot of cases, that's built from historical data where you use things like something that's common in manufacturing called control charts, where you use a control chart and you're measuring that value as it goes through time. And when it goes outside of the acceptable parameter range, then a light comes on and alerts you, we have something wrong. Something has just happened that we weren't expecting, we didn't want, and we need to investigate it. And so for the operation of an aircraft, um, or any complex system like that that has a lot of sensors, what we'll do is we'll just monitor those warning lights, which are all built to those sensors, which are all programmed by control chart-like parameters that are going to tell us, okay, here's where this thing has gone out of, out of range, and it's a problem that we may need to address. And so that's the, uh, that's the immediate... Um, you know, uh, how are we doing in terms of our sensors goal to, to make sure that the plane is going to keep flying right now? Let's take that a step further. Now let's say that we have an aircraft that has a problem and we're able to go back and decide, determine which of those parameters w was the one that caused the problem and, oh, wow, that's, that's still within the tolerance on our control, control chart. That's still what we considered within acceptable tolerance, but obviously it wasn't. So now we need to adjust our parameters in our alert systems that are going to tell us, okay, how, when should that light come on? It didn't come on soon enough. We had a problem that we didn't quite detect. And so that's the next use of the data. And that's why you would keep the data. And then, and then, of course, when you have a catastrophic event, when you have a real problem, what you want to do is take all the data from all the sensors from history and figure out at what point was it that we could have known mm. that this was going to go south? Where are the indicators that started to pile up that in their combination or some for some reason – let us know that, you know, even though it didn't alert us, that this might be a problem. And so, um, you know, that's why, that's why they're keeping, you know, the, you have these, these oil companies that have all their, all their data streaming in. And they really never need to look at it. As long as the wells keep pumping, as long as there's no, you know, explosions at the wells or there's, you know, um, nothing blows up or nothing gets spilled, everybody's happy. But as soon as something goes wrong, you need to have all the historical sensor data and you need to compare it to wells that have similar data that didn't blow up to try to determine, okay, what was the factor here that led us to this problem? And so um, a lot of, in a lot of cases right now, we're storing and maintaining tons and tons of data that we'll never need to look at. But it's really, really nice to have. It's really nice to have in case we have a problem later. We can go back and try to diagnose, okay, what was the cause of this problem? Could we have done something about it? And more importantly, how do we make sure it never happens again? So when you're collecting data and, and looking at it, because there's things that are interconnected, correct? Like And 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 I want you to correct me because I'm getting the terminology probably very, very wrong here, but there's criticality, 
and weights to the data and the interconnections. So as you're collecting all that stuff off the airplane, do you need to set up the interconnections and the relationships prior to that? Or is it done during, after the analytics? Great question. Yeah, so, so um, what, we, what we are looking is, is, is systems interact. And systems interact in their data. And there are many very good, sophisticated modeling techniques out there that can tell us what those interactions are and tell us how those input variables affect the thing that we're trying to measure. And uh, a, a number of you know very sophisticated modeling techniques that we use can show through the model what those interactions are. So this is absolutely something that 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 is important to do. And going staying with the uh, the aircraft example. Um, you absolutely want to do that beforehand. Mm. You 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 want to look at okay, so yeah, if the if the such such and such pressure gets above a certain threshold, we know that we need to adjust something because we're having a problem with this. But also, if this parameter set, if these fifteen gauges hit a combination of values that any one by themselves is not a problem, but when they all fifteen line up that way you're about to have a real problem. We need to know that as well. And that has to be determined from historical data. You have to figure out what those value sets is, what those, you know, those parameter ranges it are before you fly that aircraft. And so when you do, when you do get into a, um, a, a, a scenario where you might have a problem, not due to the any one measure, but be due to an interaction of several measures, uh, it's very important to know that beforehand. And so, absolutely, um, you know, you take you take your historical data, and this is you know when we do aircraft design, this is what they try to do is they try to figure out okay, are there are there scenarios that are going to cause us problems? If so, what are they? And those are all, um, like I said, some very sophisticated models. So the the control chart example I gave earlier, which was. You know, I kind of hinted at it being okay for each for each gauge. It's got its own uh, set of values that are acceptable and unacceptable. That extends very naturally to to multiple gauges and the combinations of those. And that's um, you know, you can calculate values off of all of those gauges and weight them as you suggested, and end up with something very um, you know, very sophisticated that tells you okay, here's here's what. Here's what the uh, um, what's going to happen next based on the the scenario the situation we're in right now. So absolutely. Well, and going back to something you said quite a while ago was the why looking at the why from the data, and I've mentioned this example a couple times, but it's very pertinent here. I was looking at the Spanx website, which mm -hmm. is the un women's undergarment company, and not for shopping purposes. I was wanting to see how things were photographed for another thing I was working on. And so for the next 10 days, all the ads I was getting served up <laughs> were for coupons and offers and this, that, and the other. And I, I like to joke that they knew I was on the site, but they didn't know why I was on the site. And so I just, I find some of the, I guess the internet data a little, uh, not comical, but just fascinating in that, they were tracking me, but they didn't know why I was there. 
they've gotten pretty good at this. Um, uh, a few years ago, my daughter was searching for a pair of pants and she couldn't find them. And I, a few hours later, opened up my email and an advertisement came down in the right, the right hand side. And there was a pair of pants there and I called her in and I said, is this what you're looking for? And she said, how'd you find it? I said, well, it just popped up. <laughs> and so those, those, um, those uh, algorithms are very sophisticated in terms of, you know, if you spend enough time searching around a product, they may, they may even be able to figure out what it was you were searching for, even if you couldn't find it. And, and that'll pop up. And, and, you know, the, the way I look at that is, well, okay, there, my daughter got a pair of pants that she otherwise wouldn't have. And she wanted, you know, so, so we all won. Um, uh, but if you're, if you are, you know, surfing sporadically or just, you know, doing something for research or something, you know, it just amazes me, um, what pops up as, you know, on <laughs> what pop-ups I see. Uh, and I always try to think back, okay, why did that one come up this time? You know, why, <laughs> right. why is that one there? Um, but the, uh, you know, the pop-ups, as, as long as you're, you're, you're not willing to pay for your services, you're going to have to tolerate pop-ups and, Quite frankly, they uh, you know they sometimes tell us what we what we didn't know we didn't know but we wanted to know and so um, you know uh, if you have a if you have a very distinct pattern we just bought a fire pit and so we were both my wife and I were both surfing for fire pits for for weeks and you know every time I open up my my email now I see an ad for fire pits still you know that I don't have a way of telling them that I bought one. <laughs> we don't need one anymore. Quit, you know, quit sending me these ads. Uh, so they haven't gotten that good yet. Um, they, they should. You know, uh, I mean, shoot, they've got all of our consumer data. They've got everything we need. You know, they, can, they can see that my wife already placed an order for a fire pit, so why would, why would, we, need another, why would we need another one? But um, it's, um, you know, as we share more data, uh, those systems get more and more sophisticated. Um, the, uh, there's obviously the, the very clear privacy concerns there, but you know, if you're using a, a free product on the internet, you're what you know the, the price you're paying is you're sharing your data with them. Right. You know, if you if you if you're willing to to open up a uh, open up Google as your search engine, okay, you 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 get a wonderful service, but it's not free. Your your Google now knows what you just searched and. Um, you know, if you have nothing to hide, that's probably not a bad thing because now Google's going to tell you, you know, maybe something will pop up that'll tell you where you want to go next, even though you don't know it yet. I was a, a uh, uh, fairly early adapter to, to, to iTunes and I was always very critical of their recommendations. You know, every time I bought a song, it was, oh, you may also like blank. And I was like, no, I don't like blank. If I wanted to <laughs> blank, I'd buy blank, you know. And and finally they got me. They 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 got me with a song that I hadn't heard since the early seventies, and I'm like, oh wow! I I bought it instantly, and now the first thing I do when I buy a song is I look at their recommendations for other songs and make sure I'm not missing something that I had forgotten about since the early seventies. So uh, yeah, to me to me those systems that you're right, they they can be comical, and and <laughs> and you can use them to you know you can use them to troll your 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 wife at home when you. You know, get on and search for a bunch of stuff, and then she has stuff pop up on her system because you have the same, same you know, AP ad, you know, IP address, and 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 uh, you know, they they are comical, but also they're um, you know they're they're doing what they're, it's to them it's good business to them this is okay we can if we can sell ads if we can um, you know uh, provide connections that will generate revenue for us then then 
you know, we'll take advantage of the data that these consumers are sharing with us and see what we can do with it. And uh, th some of those algorithms are fairly straightforward, as you as you just mentioned, and some of them can be very complex and and very detailed. And um, you know, my my daughter still has that pair of pants that that worked for her, which was a uh, which was a um, uh, you know it, it was a surprise to both of us that they she could not find them, and based on all the searches she did, the one she was looking for was the first one that popped up. Well, I love your iTunes example because one of my favorite apps ever, and I think it's just the most amazing use of all this technology, is Shazam, the song tagging tool. Because I used to keep a notebook of the songs that I liked. And speaking of the recommendations, like it went off the rails for me because I have my Shazam linked to my Spotify account. So it has all the songs that I've tagged. <clears throat> and <laughs> this is a combination of many new technologies. So I was taking an Uber back from the airport and I had tagged a song in the Uber driver's car, which was some prog rock thing. And this dude was hard selling me on prog rock. <laughs> and like the, it was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. And that opened up a floodway for 45 minutes of him talking about prog rock and all this stuff. And I finally had to go into Spotify and start, downloading and dislike or uh, downvoting and disliking these prog rock songs because my discover weekly playlist was starting to ramp up the prog rock recommendations i was like i don't like this stuff so i had to turn it off and then now it's gone away which is way better so so you are aware that uber now has a uh function to silent silence the driver I did not know that. Yes. I, so I'm in the back seat. You're in the back seat and you can push. I went quiet and, and that'll pop up on their phone. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, in, in a lot of cases, apparently people would prefer that the, the conversation with their Uber driver goes, what's up? See you later. So, <laughs> yeah. you, you might want to get that featured. Uh integrated into your in, into your system you do not you do not need to have an uber driver lecture you on prog rock on the way back from the airport <laughs> i wish i'd recorded it because it would make a great comedy bit for somebody <laughs> um talk to me about the capstone program that's something that we had talked about sure it's just a really cool thing that the, yeah. the school is doing so with our with our masters of business analytics which i'm the director of um every one of our students in their final quarter does a consulting job and we've, um, uh, what I do is I go around to organizations, mostly in the Denver area or mostly, mostly in Colorado, but we've done these all over the country where I connect with organizations and they tell me that they've got a, a lot of data. They've got a business challenge. They've got a business question and they'd like to know how to better blank. Blank means make decisions. And this could be anything from, um, you know, how does a nonprofit take, you know, allocate the time of their board in terms of reaching out to potential donors. This could be uh, what, um, how does a uh, manufacturer price their um, uh, price their their uh, products based on the elasticity that we can see in the market from from different pricing strategies across different channels. We can. Um, look at a collection agency and see, okay, who who should we spend our time with? 
who's going to uh, most likely pay up and who's most likely not going to pay up? Where do we not waste our time? Um, and we've done a lot with, uh, most of these have been corporate, but we've done a lot with, gov- with government. We've done a lot with nonprofits. And uh, what we do is we, we pair the students up with the organization. Um, two quarters before graduation, we, we uh, have the students run through what we call capstone planning, where they actually set up the project. They do a project management exercise around the project that they're going to do. And then in their final quarter, they, uh, they actually do the, proje- they do the project. Um, uh, they go in as analytic consultants. They um, try to solve the problem or discover that maybe the tools that they've tried aren't going to work for this problem, or maybe the solution that the organization is looking for isn't in the data. And, and they, um, they give a report to the company and, and a briefing to the company, and that's their, their final, uh, uh, final act before graduating is they do, a, they do a consulting job. So in doing this, we get real-world experience for our students. Our students get to go out and consult, and um, every one of them gets a different experience. We're one of, I believe, three programs in the country that does live capstones with individual students. Almost all of the live ones are done with teams, and almost all of the um, individual ones are done with old case data. We're taking live data, a real problem, and we're setting up for this company, you know, here are some potential answers to your business questions based on the data that, that you're sitting on. Every one of our students uh, works with a um, faculty advisor individually. So what I try to do is I try to pair our faculty up based on their areas of expertise with the appropriate students. And our, of course, our faculty um, are getting great uh you know, business experience through this, and they get to see the uh, um, they get to see the stuff that we teach in the classroom in action, and they get to mentor a student through this process. Um, up until uh, this current cycle, uh, these have been free, but uh, with discussions that we're having with the with our uh, college, with the business college, we're going to start charging for these. And one of the reasons we're going to start charging is because up to now. Our faculty who put a lot of time into this have not been compensated for this. Mm. So this is like advising a senior thesis or a master's <clears throat> thesis, where uh, but you're not getting paid. And so we're going to try to. Um, so our our cycle that starts in January, we're going to start charging, and it's going to be fifteen hundred dollars um, per project. Uh, I think we're going to have a government discount, and we're most likely going to still offer these free to nonprofit organizations. It's a uh, it's a great. Um, like I said, opportunity for our students. They get to consult. This is something that we put on their resumes as a consulting job. It's not just a course that they took or uh, you know an internship that they had. They're actually consultants, and and we treat we we want them to treat treat it like that. We um uh <laughs> the, the hallway has like a, a you can close that door, but it's actually the wall. Yeah, right there. <laughs> we'll we'll definitely filter that yeah. out. Okay, so um, Doctor Trent thought we'll cut all this out. Giving <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, so this this goes on their resume as a consulting job, and uh, it gives them experience before they graduate. That you know we've 
we've um, you know we've actually taken what we've learned and we put into practice and we've solved a real world problem for an organization, uh, and we've just seen some tremendous um, uh, benefits to the students, but we've also seen some tremendous benefits to the organization. We've had one project which saved roughly 150 million dollars a year for a company. Uh, that was that was our all-time winner. I would say our second one was in the twenty million dollar range, but we've provided some real value to organizations, um, and you know even for the ones that have not produced any, you know, uh, significant results that are going to change the way the company is doing business. Uh, what we've been able to do is, is say, okay, you know, we've looked at your data here. It really isn't going to help you answer this question. We just saved you a $20,000 consulting fee to a consulting you know, company. And uh, hopefully the student has written up recommendations on, but if you want to really solve this problem, here's some other places you might look. And so it's a, uh, um, it's a great opportunity for our, our corporate partners who we, we work with. I right now have a network of over 400 organizations across Denver and Colorado and, and the United States. And a couple overseas where where we've done some some really neat work with a lot of these organizations and it's uh um like i said it's a great opportunity for us it's a great opportunity for our corporate partners it's a great opportunity for our faculty and I'm, uh, um, even though the program's been been free for so many years i think uh fifteen hundred dollars for one of these consulting jobs is a a pretty reasonable amount for a um for, for the work that we're providing oh it's a steal it's a steal <clears throat> um, without violating any confidentiality or NDAs that $150 million. Can you kind of dive into a little bit of what the problem was or what the analytics were? And if you can't, that's fine too. Actually that, uh, <clears throat> that was the, that was the, uh, the hospital scheduling problem I mentioned earlier. Oh, wow. it was, that was, that was, that was an example of building a model to, to, to fill up the gaps and the, fill up the spaces between their, um, but between their appointments and what it did is it, it gave them a, it gave them a uh, basically doubled the use of their uh, facilities, which, and it was an organization that had long waiting lists at their, at, at their, um, at their main facility because of um, uh, exam room space. And that, that uh, made a, made a huge dent in their, in their operations. Well, it's something you had said before a couple times about, you know, it's a win, like your daughter got the pants and you got your fire pit and things like that. I'm generally of the camp that data <clears throat> and the collection of data is fairly benign. And I think that um, I wanted your opinions on that. Like, I, I know I'm being tracked. I know that mm -hmm. GPS, I know I'm being recorded, you know, to some extent and things like that. But for the most part, I don't think there's evil overlords taking that and and plotting against me. I I certainly hope not. Um, we still have to be careful. Uh, sure. There, and and it is it is a serious consideration. But I'm always amused at the people who are are screaming about their privacy still put their entire lives out on Facebook for the you know, for the world <laughs> to see. And. And, uh, and I'll be honest. Uh, full disclosure here: um, I, I am on LinkedIn because it's a way that I connect with um, with our, our partners for Capstones, and it's a way that I connect with my alumni group. But that's the only social media site that I'm on. I wouldn't really consider LinkedIn social media. I consider that business media. But no, I don't. I don't do any social media. Um, I more due to personal preference. But 
But when people start talking to me about privacy uh, and I look at their social media footprint, I tend to chuckle. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there, are, there are certainly laws. Um, I think that maybe when the NSA was allegedly collecting every phone call that was being made, uh, you know, obviously they're not looking at it. They don't have time. They don't care. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it may in some way violate the understanding of privacy that we might have. Uh, of course, the, the crass view is, well, if you're not doing anything bad, what do you have to worry about? Um, but then you can take that one step further and go overseas. And um, the uh, I, I spent some time last summer in Hangzhou, and it's a city of 10 million people. And uh, I believe it's 1.7 million cameras. And it's uh, there's no crime. You can walk around at 2 in the morning in the college district, and there's people out there having a good time. And they know that. And they even have... Uh, you know, uh, AI software that looks at the way that the people who are being filmed are be are behaving. And if it looks like there's a fighter, it looks like there's a robbery, they send a cop there immediately. So it's a phenomenal system. Um, you know, uh, there's no such thing as robbing a store in Hangzhou because as soon as you leave the store, uh, you know, the, they've got you on camera. And one of the things that I was really amused by was the thing that they use that camera system the most for is there's a lot of old people there. And when grandpa wanders off, they just call up and say, hey, grandpa just wandered off. And they pick him up 30 seconds later on some camera and go pick him up and take him home. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's really neat. But the potential for a system like that to, you know, be used, um, I don't know if you, you know, you, if you, you uh, if you want to pick, you know, if you want to catch your political opponent walking down the street picking his nose and suddenly you put that in a in an ad during a campaign or something you know you can you've got a lot of data there that you can really use in a bad way and um you know i know how the the you know here in the united states we've got well over 400 social media sites in china they've got one it's wechat you know and uh you know it's no secret the government monitors wechat and it's no secret that they're you know, they're keeping their eye on everybody, and if you say something subversive, or if you have a picture of Xi Jinping and Winnie the Pooh on your on your phone, you you've just violated you know federal law there, and they're going to catch you. Um, you know, there's 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 a way to take that to an extreme that unfortunately we've seen, and because it does happen not here but in other places, I use China as is one example where I think there's some great benefits there, but there's also some potential for things to go south. I, I wouldn't even want to discuss what, what happens in Russia. But there, um, with, 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 with these systems in place, uh, we have to be a little bit careful about, you know, who's, who's holding the keys and what are their, motiv what are their motivations. And, you know, uh, can, can that be used for political reasons? Can that be used for marketing reasons you know can can the things that you're doing by walking down the street uh be held against you 10 years later because we've got it on camera and we've kept all that data and so there's there's there are ways that this can go south but you know if you get get you know get on google and start surfing around and, and you click on a bunch of sites google's going to know exactly what sites you just clicked on 
and they most likely don't care and they're most likely not going to do much with it except for maybe share some of that with their uh, with their their marketing agencies and with their their corporate partners who want to who want to sell you things and so you know if that's all it's being used for and we get recommendations on things that we didn't even know we needed well good for us and if we share our data at the checkout at the supermarket with our our customer ID card and they notice that we're regular customers and we certainly always buy this so they're going to keep this in stock. Well, that's not a bad thing. You know? So there's, there's an entire spectrum over there. I think Europe has gone um, off the deep end on this where they have their right to be forgotten. Um, where a search engine, if, you, if a you know, search engine finds out that you were a pedophile, the, it's the search engine's fault if you've asked them to, to not make that available. My, my view on that is if... If Europe doesn't want your criminal history known and you have a right to have it not available to anybody, well, then why do they have it on publicly accessible systems? Right. Why do they have it on websites? Where do they ha- why do they have a website with your criminal history on it, with your arrest history on it, with your convictions on there and say, oh, but the search engine can't find that. But anybody going directly to that website and opening it up can find it. So you don't have a right to be forgotten. You just have a right for for Google to not point somebody searching for you to that website. That's ridiculous. You know, um, I think I think um it's 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 just it's a system that that I I find ludicrous. But then again, there's you know, Europe has different standards of privacy and freedom than we do. Uh, they worry about different things than we do apparently. Um, and as as much as the world is flattening I just, you know, was able to give two examples of technology that we all have available to us that, you know, is done very, very differently across the across the oceans that surround us here. So that's a it's it's an interesting question and point. Um, you know, uh, I'm okay with sharing our data. I'm okay with people knowing a little bit about me when I go on to publicly accessible systems. You know, people know what you look like when you walk down the street and they see you. They may not know who they, who you are, but they know. And, you know, how much privacy do we want? Do we want to put everybody under a cloak and just, you know, walk around in secrecy? No. And and uh, I don't think we need to do that in terms of our electronic foot, footprint either. But there are absolutely legitimate considerations in terms of what's, you, you know, who's who's holding the keys to the kingdom and what are they going to do with it? And, um, you know, uh, as dysfunctional as our government is right now, uh, I'm not sure I would trust a lot, <laughs> a lot of people in our government to, to be trustworthy with, with, with our personal data. Even though, of course, you know, Social Security Administration certainly has all of our Social Security numbers. And I'm glad they do. I just hope that they don't get hacked. You know, um, as a military veteran, um, the uh, some VA files were hacked a couple of years ago, and and you know, it just was absurd to me that somebody was walking around with all the personal data from our veterans on a laptop that they left in the front seat of their car. You know, uh, so um, whether it's it's a, uh, a nefarious reason or whether it's just based on pure stupidity, we do have to have a little bit of concern with the data that we have out there and hope that whoever's maintaining it does it correctly and does does it respectfully. Um, and, of course, uh, I'm 
at, at this point, I'm not completely convinced that everybody in our government would do that respectfully, but I, I am also uh, very convinced that a number of, uh, you know, most NSA analysts are not looking for their political opponents to be doing something embarrassing as they're walking down the street. I think they're looking for people who are really trying to do harm to this country and they're doing their job and they're doing it well, and I'm personally glad they're doing it. So you'd mentioned machine learning and AI. How would you how would you define those two terms from your perspective? Absolutely, and I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you said machine learning and not deep machine learning because I still get frustrated over the when people try to make a distinction on that. Um, I don't consider basic analytics to be machine learning, but some people do, and those people who do that call what I call machine learning, they call it deep machine learning. And unfortunately, that seems to be the, 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 the uh, conventional wisdom now. But deep machine learning is where the machine is doing exactly what an, an analytic model does, a direct model, like you know, a principal component analysis or regression modeling or some type of clustering or some type of forecasting. And direct analytic models are ones where the analyst knows what's going on. They know the math behind it. They know the algorithm behind it. And it's, uh, you know, it's just done much more effectively by machine. With the deep machine learning, things like artificial neural networks, where you feed a lot of data into a network system, into this, into this algorithm, and then the algorithm is allowed to build its own rules. And it does it stochastically. And what it does is as you feed it training data, it does better. You know, as it, as it makes changes to its rule system, if it does better, it reinforces those changes. If it does worse, it, it then backs those changes out and tries to find how to do things as well as possible. Um, and it's a, uh, by the time systems like that are done learning, and now they've been set up and in to do something, and these are generally the hard problems. These are problems that you can't do with you know, with uh, um, direct direct analytic techniques. These are things like image analysis, you know, or video analysis, or some some other things like that. You know, problems that are just so complex and with so much data that you're you're never gonna break it down to a, a, a simple, um, you know, a, a simple algorithm. Uh, when, when the machine's done learning and it's been trained, it's ready to make decisions for you. It's ready to, to tell you what's in this image. Um, the, uh, the difference is at that point, the analyst has no idea what's happening in the algorithm. There's so many, uh, you know, a, a, a deep machining, a deep learning network, a neural network with, you know, a hundred layers deep could have up to a hundred million different possible rule sets. You know, something just absolutely, um, you know, or actually a hundred million <laughs> actual rule sets. Uh, there's so many rules that, that you can never go back and, and, and determine what they are. You can, you can reverse engineer through a system like that to try to figure out, okay, what are the inputs that are, you know, Changing things here, um, and you get you get mistakes. Uh, you 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 have image analysis systems that have been trained that that when they see a grassy hill, they think it's a flock of sheep because every flock of sheep that they've ever been told this is a flock of sheep has been on a grassy hill. So you know uh, you know they they're they're prone to mistakes. They're um, but uh, if we if we train them carefully and correctly, uh, uh, they can be very useful. 
Um, you know, like I said, we said earlier, there's so many images being taken every day. And sometimes, you know, we might want to know what those images that are floating around the Internet are, what, what, what they're of. And, and we're only going to alert on ones that are of concern to us. Well, a machine learning algorithm is ideal for that, where it'll say, okay, well, we're looking for this. Okay, well, here's some possible images. And so that's, you know, that's an example of machine learning, but that's basically how machine learning or deep machine learning works. It's a, uh, um, it's, it's, it's a new technique, or fairly new technique, and the, the only reason it's fairly new is because we just haven't had the computing power in the past to really do it. You, to train a good algorithm needs, you know, millions or tens of millions of inputs and and so you you know you you uh you really need a, a lot of um computing power for that algorithm to build itself i know uber was doing a wonderful one where they're looking at a self-driving car and trying to get it to learn where to stop okay where is the fr we're at the address but where's the front of the building what mm. you know and you're looking for you're looking for street numbers but you're also looking for you know are you going to be thrown off by riding on a par on, on a, a bus stop or riding on the back of somebody's jacket as you're walking down the sidewalk? And so, you know, an Uber was taking pictures every meter. You know, driving down the street and taking images every meter and using those those images to train their machine learning system to tell the car, the self-driving car, where is it that you need to stop once you've arrived at your address. And so these are the really hard, complex problems. And, uh, you know, so that's really machine learning in a nutshell. It's, it's no different than taking a lot of data and running it through an analytic model and getting a result that can explain something or predict something or describe something. But it's just with much more complex problems. Um, you know, uh, in the early days, facial recognition might have been a candidate for, for machine learning, but facial recognition has become so, so easy now that we you know that 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 we don't need machine learning algorithms for it anymore. Those are direct algorithms. But now China has taken it a step further, and they're looking at identifying individuals by their gait. And as they're walking down the street, okay, who is you know we know their we know who they are by their face, but what if we don't see their face? Can we tell who they are by how they're walking? And and that's absolutely a machine learning um, a, a machine learning problem, which is a a, a very complex problem. Um, and it's uh, and and it really requires a lot of computing power. So that's why machine learning is expo is, is 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 undergoing such a, a you know a boom right now. It's just it's exploding all over the world, and it's 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 kind of exciting because we're we're able to solve some very hard problems. And then that leads into AI, and and uh, AI is is just a wonderfully misunderstood term because <laughs> what, what I've seen is I've seen so many people talk about their AI solutions. And when I've asked them, well, how does that differ from just a basic machine learning solution? They look at me like I'm crazy. They say, what do you mean? It's, it's, we use machine learning. Of course you use machine learning, but where's the AI part? And the AI part there, um, takes it a step further. You know, it, it, most AI systems, or virtually all the ones I'm familiar with, have a machine learning element to them where, where you have a very hard problem to solve. And so you're going to let the algorithm train itself based on the possibilities. But now the, the, the AI system is actually going to do something where it, it's mimicking human behavior. 
It's the one making the decision. It's not just saying, here's what I see, but it's saying, here's what I see, here's what you should do. And it's interesting when uh, uh, IBM tried to repurpose Watson to do medical diagnoses, um, you know, a, a basic medical diagnosis, you know, diagnostic system would be a machine learning system where you, where you take the, uh, you take millions of, of sets of, of symptoms and correct diagnoses and you feed these into the, into the algorithm. You let it learn to make a diagnosis off of a set of symptoms. On the flip side, um, they took Watson and they, because it has a natural language processing capability, they fed it a bunch of medical journals and they wanted, they wanted Watson to actually read medical journals to learn from them and to figure out how to make better diagnoses based on not only the input patient data that it was given, historical patient data, but on what's appearing in the journals. And it had a very difficult time doing that. And my, my understanding is it, it did not do well and it is not doing well. It is not outperforming the humans as we would hope it would. But that would be a great goal for an AI system. Um, one of my colleagues at DU is in the Lamont School of Music and he, he teaches um, uh, electronic composition. Um, don't call it dubstep. But uh, he, he does. He does. Uh, he he does electronic composition. He he uses AI software where the AI software actually writes the music. Hmm. And to me, that's you know. Okay, so is it good? Have you heard it? Yes, yes. It's not well. Well, but but again, he's he's in. The reason it's good, I think, is because he's integrating it with his own composition. With okay. his, you know, he. But but you know, he's he's letting the he's letting the software write things. And we had we had a very nice discussion on you know you know whose whose IP is this? You know who's who owns the song? You know, um, but uh, but uh, you know, to me, you know, if if a if if you have a piece of software that's writing music. If you have a piece of software that's telling jokes or, you know, making up puns, that's where you get into AI. You know, that's, that's where you're, you know, and, and whether it's crossing a street or, or playing Go or playing chess or a self-driving car, um, those, those are, are AI systems where, where not only are they, you know, so they have an algorithm running underneath them. But they're constantly learning and they're constantly updating. And maybe at some point, um, we'll get into a distinction between weak AI and strong AI. You know, they're going to learn how to learn. And, and uh, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I, I, don't, I, think, I still personally think we're a, a ways off from strong AI. But the, uh, um, with, with the increase in computing power that we're seeing, it may not be as far off as, as we thought it was. Um, you know, I mean, AI was suggested back in the 50s by that, 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 that uh, um, uh, Minsky and crew yeah, Dartmouth, you know, some very, very smart people. And it's had these resurgences over the years. You know, periodically AI comes back in the foreground and goes, oh, well, no, we're not there yet. Oh, we're not there yet. And we're seeing another resurgence right now. And I think um, certainly in terms of weak AI, uh, we're we're doing we're we're we now have the computing power to to allow that to happen. In terms of strong AI, where where the where the system learns how to learn and really mimics quote thinking, um, I still think we're a bit uh, uh, a bit of ways off for that. So going back to the picture of the sheep example, so if if you had never hypothetically had seen a, a sheep and I called up a picture of a sheep, 
and it would take you two seconds to understand it's an animal, wool, all that sort of stuff. And if we showed a newborn, like a three-week-old, a picture of that, no context, no comprehension. So if you were to assign, say, like a biological age, just in general to machine learning as it stands today with what you know, what age would you assign machine learning? How smart is it? How old is it? That's a that's a great question because it can do some very, very sophisticated things that we can't do at all. But then, you know, Google Maps still can't tell the difference between a tennis court and a parking lot. So uh, so it's it's it, it really varies. But the example I always like is kind of the classic machine learning task, which is tell the difference between a cat and a giraffe. So here's an image of a cat and here's an image of a giraffe. Okay. Tell the difference. And uh, that takes a typical system roughly three to five million images to train it <laughs> until it gets that right. <clears throat> and it, because, you know, the, the cat and giraffe have enough similarities but enough differences that we should be able to tell the difference. And so, you know, after three to five million images, most ML systems could tell you that with 99.99% certainly this is a cat, this is a giraffe. Um, every three-year-old on the planet can do that. <laughs> so there's there's you know uh, uh, of course you know you would not need to build a machine learning system to create a cat giraffe detector but just using that as, as as a simple academic example that is often used as a first problem for machine learning for image analysis that's a uh, you know um, takes a lot of training and so uh, you uh, the, these systems are you know I guess I'd have to throw that back and say, you know, okay, how smart, how old is Alexa? Hmm. How old is Siri? Yeah. You know, and those are, those are, those are, um, uh, you know, those are my best understanding, really true AI systems where they're, you know, they're actually doing some very cool stuff and they're behaving like humans and they're learning and they're collecting data and they're getting smarter. But, um, Right now, it's most likely still all algorithmic. Uh, we just won't, we'll never know the uh, complexity of, or the precise algorithms that are underlying them because of their complexity. But, uh, you know, we're, st we're still on algorithmic systems now. And, you know, uh, when, when are we going to get to strong AI where systems can, uh, you know, can, in fact, learn how to learn, where systems can, in fact, pass Turing tests uh, and doing all the things that we've established as the, the standard for success in strong AI. So we have a ways to go there, I believe. And uh, I'm just, you know, looking forward to seeing where uh, the very smart people who are working on this take it in the coming years. Well, Phil, this has been great. I've enjoyed the, the education and the discussion on everything data big data and all that and um for people for businesses interested in capstone i'll uh, include links to this but where can people uh, connect with you for for those opportunities just through the daniels college of business at the okay. university of denver i'm where i'm on the faculty directory there which is open to the public and uh, i welcome anyone reaching out to me i uh like i said i i one of the things I really enjoy doing is is going around the state and talking with organizations who have neat challenges and figuring out ways we can get our um, students involved in helping them solve their problems and getting our students involved in their businesses before before they graduate. It's a uh, it's it's a fun program to run. It's uh, like I said, there's only a couple other ones in the country that are similar to it, 
and uh, we've we've seen great benefits to our graduates, but also to our corporate partners. So it's a it's a it's a very exciting program, and I I welcome anyone to reach out to me with uh, with good ideas. And like I said, uh, even though we are starting to charge for those, uh, we're we're most likely still get, we're going to um, keep it free for nonprofits. So uh, we're doing we're doing some really neat. Uh, for example, one just a very neat nonprofit right now. The the Colorado uh, Search and Rescue teams, oh. uh, you know, these are people who are out there just, you know, putting in their own resources, putting in their own, uh, um, uh, you know, their own time, and they don't get paid a cent. <laughs> They're not funded, and what they do, you know, they keep us all safe when we're when we're <laughs> cruising through the national parks and and slipping on uh, slipping on on icy cliffs and things. And uh, obviously, that's an organization who we are delighted to do. Uh, work with and have no intention of ever charging. So, so the, all the, the great nonprofits that we've worked with, the, the Colorado Symphony Orchestra and the Colorado Ballet and Dumb Friends League and uh, yeah, um, Habitat for Humanity and so many others, uh, we have great relationships with. And and for for nonprofits, we're gonna we're gonna try to keep this free. So. But but uh, as I, as you said, uh, thank you for pointing out that fifteen hundred dollars is a pretty uh, pretty reasonable rate for a consulting job for for one of these. And I welcome anyone who's got uh, questions about uh, about the program to contact me. I'm on I'm on our website, and I'm always delighted to to have that conversation. Cool. Well, Dr. Phil Beaver, thank you very much for the time. It's been uh, just a, another great conversation. So thank you so much. Well, Matt, thank you so much for hosting this, and I've really enjoyed it, and you've asked some wonderful questions, and we'll look forward to continuing the conversation.